All right, well, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, that would be wonderful. Hey, guys. And as you do, grab your Bibles, uh, whether the copy you brought, whether the uh, digital version you've got stashed in your pocket, maybe the version that's in front of you in one of the chairs. Um, you want to get yourselves to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, but then you also want to find Psalm 73. Um, and so we're going to be working back and forth between those two. So if it works well for you to find something to, to put in one of those reference locations so that you've got an easier place to, and way to reference back and forth, uh, we're going to be working back and forth between Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and Psalm 73. They are written by different people. Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, obviously uh, we've been working through this series um, with the conviction and understanding that Solomon wrote these words. And so uh, what those two passages do though is they shine a very specific light on the same type of dilemma. And they both conclude the same type of answer. And so it's going to be helpful for us to look back and forth between the two of them. But as we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been trying to accomplish a few things along our way. And one of the first things that we've been wanting to do is see all areas of life as opportunities to worship. That we're by design worshipers. We're not given the choice to worship. We're not, we've not been made to worship. We have been made worshipers. And so all areas of life become opportunities to worship Christ. And Solomon has just time and time again shined and shown the spotlight on different areas of life and has by and large presented some issue that he sees as all he observes under the sun outside of any influence from God, just what happens here on earth. And he exposes this dilemma and then oftentimes has given us this refrain of well, what is it good for us to do. And we can see in the midst of him exposing this dilemma uh, and then providing solutions along the way that the areas he shines his spotlight on our opportunities to worship Christ. Well, if we are made as worshipers and worship is not an option for us, but something by, by default we do, well, then the second one becomes pretty true as well. And so we're asking the Lord to help us see how all areas of life are potential traps for idolatry, potential traps for false worship. And what we saw so clearly articulated and written about in Solomon's life last week from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 as well as 1 Kings chapter 11, the issue in the area of Solomon's sex life was most certainly a place of idol worship. And it actually led to the creation of idols and the sacrificing to those idols. And so you have Point number two being very clearly demonstrated in scene. But we've traced that through in regards to money, in regards to fame, in regards to, uh, the, to the working hard, even the value of wisdom. Solomon's going to get after today the idea of, of justice and injustice. And he's going to say again, as he did in the, in the middle of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, you know, look, when, when you pursue justice, it's a good pursuit. But even the pursuit of justice will actually leave you finding that there's vanity there as well. 
because those scales of justice are not always equal. And so you can't just go and pursue justice and find all of the meaning of life to be found in, well, let's just have equity and justice and fairness because you're going to find that those scales aren't fair. Well, then that leads us to the third thing as we consider, well, what is the meaning of life? Where is life to be found? Where are the, the things that are worth investing our time in? We then have been praying and asking the Lord to help us see that an abundant life is found in and through Jesus Christ. Not that he becomes the genie that grants all of our wishes where abundance is defined by us, but rather our definition of abundance and our contentment with what he has given would be enjoyed by us and seen as gifts from him as they are. So Solomon today is going to plunge back into matters of justice and injustice. And he, in many ways, is going to say some things that will sound very similar to what we walked through and thought about two and three weeks ago. But he changes the perspective ever so slightly. And where a couple weeks ago he was working us through the idea that we can't control the outcome of our life as if life was a recipe That we put a bunch of ingredients into a bowl and if we bake it at the right temp for the right amount of time, out pops the cookies. We can't have that level of control over life. He's going to tackle the same type of ideas. But he's going to change the perspective just ever so slightly. And he's going to actually work us over in regards to the despair that at times we can have as we look out at the injustice in the world and may wonder, God, where are you? But as well, work us over in a way that hits much closer to home as we consider the fact that when we do fail and when we do sin, we can even be prone to think, well, the lightning bolt didn't come. It must not have been that big of a deal. And there can be an arrogance that creeps in as we find the effects of our sin not immediately experienced. And so that's going to make a little bit more sense as we hop into the text. So let's pray, and then we'll look at verses 1 to 9. We'll spend much more of our time in Ecclesiastes 10 and following, but like I said, hop back and forth between Psalm 73 as well. But that's a bit of a roadmap of where we're going this morning. So let's go before the Lord and just ask Him to come and be gracious to us. And Lord, we do pray for that and ask for that. That you would be gracious in our midst this morning to help us understand what it is that you have written. God, you make known the paths of life. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore and there is joy in your presence. And God, as we consider those truths and the truths of your word and how consistently throughout this entire book and consistently throughout the entire scriptures, you you speak to the value and the profit and the wisdom of obedience. God, we're again confronted with those things this morning. So we pray, and I pray that you would come and just allow your word to be to be understood. That you would help us to see how it makes sense and applies to our lives. And so, God, we ask that you'd be gracious in that way to us this morning. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, verses 1 to 9 in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 are 
profoundly important as we get to chapter 8, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10, Solomon is going to shine the spotlight on this gross injustice in the world. And he is going to raise the questions and the issues of what do you and I do, what do we feel, what do we experience, and what are we tempted to do as we look out in the world and we see amazing feats of evil and wickedness with what appears to be zero consequences or punishment. That's where he's going to go when we get to verse 10. And so there's a significant point to verses 1 to 9, but as we look at verses 1 to 9, they by and large are going to read and feel and sound like a summary of everything he has just said up to this point. And I think he did that on purpose. Because what we get to in verse 10 is him going, look, the wicked, they're buried, they're praised, they enjoy being and coming and going in the temple. They've got, they've got status in society, although everybody knows they're wicked. And it's because the lightning bolt didn't come nearly as fast as we would humanly conclude that we think it should. And so then you and I can become tempted to despair at what we see in the world, and I think we also can be tempted to arrogantly find ourselves puffed up and perhaps even concluding, oh, my sin doesn't matter so much. So what? Well, verses 1 to 9 hammer that idea into the ground, and they put both of those to death, and it's just going to be a summary of this whole theme of wisdom and obedience that Solomon has been getting after since the beginning. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time in those verses because they're going to read and feel very, very familiar. But we'll get to verse 10. We need verses 1 to 9 to set that up. Let's go then to 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is Change. So here Solomon's asking some rhetorical questions. They're a bit poetical in their form, but he's asking and he's communicating the value of wisdom. And it's important, given the context of what he's going to get after in all of chapter 8, he is reminding us wisdom actually does matter. Even though you look at the fool and you see what appears to be positive results, do not forget that wisdom actually does matter. And so he he walks through a couple different ways that we see wisdom matter even the physical, in the physical countenance of wise, godly people. So let me just ask you, do you know somebody who has loved the Lord for their entire lives, that they've served Him, they have aimed their life after them? Uh, by and large, I would imagine that they are probably gentle people, that their facial features are not gruff. One guy that comes to mind um, that, that I think of is, is, is a man by the name of Norm Gonzali. He went home to be with the Lord a little bit ago. Norm was a towering giant of a man. Like, I would probably not be at Norm's eye level right now standing on this platform. He was just huge. And he was a principal at our Christian school in Warsaw. So you talk about striking fear into the hearts of little kids. That, that, I mean, that was Norm, but Norm was a gentle giant. And I'm not sure there was another man in that church that I found more gentle and compassionate and caring and merciful and gracious and prayerful. I mean, 
all of those things that you expect godly, wise people to be, he is the person that embodies that. His, despite his physical stature, there was a gentleness to his face. And there was not a hardness to his heart and his soul. And I was, I was, I was just thinking and praying this morning as I was sitting in my office and I looked out of my office window and there's a tree right out of my office window. And you can see some of the small little buds and, and branches begin to grow. And it just struck me in a way that it never had before as I was looking at this little tree. Those little shoots, if left untouched by humans or by wind or by any other act of God, I mean, at some point, have the potential to become the trunks and limbs that you would climb on because they're at some point able to support the weight. And it was just this reminder of some of the most massive trees that we have in our nation and that are in the world start as small little seeds and little saplings. You can't climb a sapling. You can sure climb an oak tree after 40, 50 years. And it was just this beautiful reminder as I was just looking out my window and looking at this, I think it was a maple tree, just this consistent desire to obey and follow the Lord lived in the same direction. You take what is a weak little sapling, unable to support weight, and you see that it flourishes and it gains strength. And I think that's Solomon's reminder for us here in verse 1 that wisdom actually does matter. Wisdom does indeed matter. Well, he's going to then in verse 2 and following get after the idea that obedience does matter as well. And so that's essentially the summary of these. So I'll read the text. We'll just briefly touch on these, but they're all very familiar and they're all fairly repetitive in that they function as a summary of what he has already been saying. I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will the wickedness or nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Now Solomon writing as a king to a people that would have had a king living in a kingdom has some things to say in the context of kings and his subjects. Well, us as Americans, we, we don't readily identify with that because we don't have a king. And we rebelled against the king several hundred years ago. And we said, we want, we want a different form of government. And so there's some disconnect here. And I, and I think we can principally apply some of what Solomon says to just how we interface and interact with our 
uh, rulers and authorities. And there's other scriptures that make that very clear, that we're to be submissive to them and subject to them because they're, they're appointed by God in our lives to have a function. And, and yet what Solomon is saying here doesn't necessarily connect with us because we don't have a guy sitting on a throne ruling as a monarch. But as believers, we have a heavenly kingdom that we are a part of. And Solomon, as a king in Israel, would have actually functioned as a type of the king who was going to come, that being Jesus Christ. And so I don't want to make too much of that because it's not necessarily in this passage, but you can see these ideas being very closely and very easily applied to just what we consider our relationship with the Lord to look like as our king who's reigning in a heavenly way right now and will one day reign in an earthly way. And so Solomon just reminds us, be careful to obey. Be careful to stay close. Do not stand for evil. He reminds us you can't challenge the king when he makes decisions. That's what it's going to be. He reminds us that obedience protects us from evil. He reminds us that there's a time for everything. Even when we may not understand why something's taking place at the present time, there is a time for everything. He reminds us that we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. He reminds us that we are powerless over death. And he reminds us that wickedness will not deliver. And he writes these reminders as a very, very important summary for us as we get to verse 10. Because he's reminding us that wisdom and obedience matters. Because what we're going to see in verse 10 is that when you look under the sun, it looks like wisdom and obedience doesn't matter at all. So let's go there and turn our attention to verse 10 and just consider then what Solomon begins to shine the spotlight on. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So I think the big idea that we can place verses 10 to 17 under in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is there on the screen. It's this idea, this principle from Scripture, that we should not confuse God's patience With his permission. Don't confuse God's patience with his permission. And he begins to walk us through this idea by telling us that there are wicked people who seemingly are prospering. And they died in their human prosperity. And there was even a rejoicing and a celebration and an honoring of those people when they died. And he begins to then bring up within us, and I believe purposefully so, the question of why does injustice like that happen? Where is God in the midst of the wicked, and why do they prosper? And I think he's wanting us to consider that God is being patient, and he's doing something. We're not to confuse his patience with his permission. And he does that partially by reminding us in verses 1 to 9 just how important obedience is. God's not granted permission when you see the wicked prosper. But he is displaying patience. We're not to confuse 
those things. See, we can look at the injustice in the world and what appears to be the prosperity of those who are working evil, and we can find ourselves wondering, why should I bother with holiness or obedience because the wicked seem to win? Why do I play it straight when the other guys who are playing it crooked seem to have an upper hand? I mean, you can be tempted to to make those conclusions in business. Why do I have ethical business practices if the guys with unethical business practices seem to have more business and seem to have better accounts and better tools and better trucks and all of those things? I mean, we can very easily find ourselves asking this most significant and serious question that is one of a bit of despair, of wondering, God, why? Why should I even bother with holiness and obedience because it doesn't seem to matter. Well, on the other side of this, if we find ourselves having sin, I think we can equally find ourselves, when the lightning bolt doesn't come immediately, tempted to go, wasn't that big of a deal. Didn't matter a whole lot. And Solomon's turning the light on this part. And I'll just tell you, one, one of the areas that the Lord kind of shone the spotlight on my heart this week, and, and it exposed some fickleness that I, I wasn't, quite frankly, aware that was there until I was getting into this text and considering these things. Um, quite frankly, I would be, I'd be perfectly fine if we left this room and we caught a Fox News or a CNN news break and learned that every ISIS fighter just immediately went away. I mean, I don't know how you feel about some of that, and maybe, maybe you're not going to ever come back again with me admitting this before you, but like, I would be okay with that. Like, I, I would find myself okay if we left this room and we learned that every human trafficker found themselves spontaneously having combusted and all of the people they held in captav- captivity were set free. And the whole $32 billion industry completely dissolved. Like, I would be perfectly okay with that. And I would would probably go, God was just. Like, he brought the sword. Praise God for bringing the sword. All right, now here's where the fickleness came in, okay? I'm reading through the Old Testament right now. And you read through some of what the Lord had Israel do in some of those nations. He had them bring the sword. And I found myself reading going, wow, really? Really, God? Like, you just, like, an entire nation just gone? Conquered? And the Lord this week just exposed this fickleness in my heart where it's like, I'm completely good with human traffickers and ISIS, and you can probably find a lot more examples than those two, but yet I find myself, when he does and has in the past, brought the sword, tempted to kind of shake my fist at him and go, why'd you bring the sword? Come on, it felt unjust that you brought the sword. And I don't know if you feel that, and maybe you're going to feel it now as you read tomorrow morning in, in, in God's word, but like I found myself with just this fickleness exposed where what it amounts to is the fact that, that I, in that moment, have placed myself 
higher than God, concluding that I know enough about ISIS and human traffickers to believe that divine justice is now warranted. But it didn't feel warranted when I just read a little bit of what the Lord gave us in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Joshua and Judges and the Samuels. And it amounts to me just honestly considering myself more wise and more right and more just than God. I mean, and if there's anything that's more an example of idolatry, I'm not sure what it is. But we can read these passages and we can struggle with this idea of, God, what are you doing? Why is ISIS still getting to behead people? Why are they taking little girls and, and robbing them from their families and doing all sorts of terrible things to them? Why is human trafficking soon to be the most profitable, organized criminal industry in the world? Like, why are you not bringing the sword? And Solomon's wanting us to just understand and see that, you know what? God's being patient, and we don't know the reasons for his patience. But his patience is not giving permission. So we need to tread very, very carefully. And so Solomon says back in verse 10, I saw the wicked buried. Burial in this culture would have been a big deal. Burial signaled and signified that somebody had status. And you can even read, and there's examples in the Old Testament of, of people that were just really evil and wicked, and prophets would say, let them not be buried. They don't get a burial because of their wickedness. But Solomon's saying, these wicked people, they got a funeral. They got a burial. They were identified, he identifies them as wicked. And they got a burial. But not just that, they were able to come and go from the temple, and they were able to enjoy the privileges of such comings and goings. Now, just for a minute, fast forward a few thousand years and think about what we know about Matthew. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, was a tax collector. He was not allowed in the temple. He had been booted out of the synagogues. Okay, so here's a man, he had a, he had a Roman profession, and we can question the legitimacy of what his business dealings were, and rightfully so, he had been booted. But here, there is a class of wicked people that had not been booted. And they weren't just enjoying the coming and going out of the holy place. They were actually praised in the city where they had done such things. These were people that were really good at doing the wrong things and finding some way to be celebrated and praised for it. Verse 11, because the sentence of an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. We see this actually play out in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, where they lied and immediately Ananias drops dead. And we're told that great fear seized the church. There was a speedy consequence in that moment and everybody stood back and went, holy smokes. And then Sapphira, three hours later, when she was done with her hair and makeup, came waltzing in and she had the same occurrence. And again, we're told, great fear seized the church because there was a speedy judgment. Solomon wants us to not confuse God's patience with his permission. We'll go to Psalm 73. Let's look at what Asaph has to say in regards to these things. I don't know this for sure. We can't answer or prove it biblically, conclusively, but it's possible that Solomon and Asaph were writing about the same people. 
Asaph actually served under David and he served under Solomon. Asaph sang at the dedication of the temple and he was a songwriter, he was a worship leader. At one point he had this really cool job where he just got to decide when in the midst of music it was the right time to play the cymbals. Like that's Asaph. He had this job. So he's a singer-songwriter, he's a worship leader, he's a solo artist, and he's Mike Thompson all rolled into one. All right? Well done on the timing of the cymbals earlier this morning. I mean, Asaph would be proud. Asaph worked in the temple. It's quite possible Asaph saw these wicked people coming and going in the holy place in what appeared to be no consequence for their action. So he writes this in the beginning of Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. I almost made a grave error and a grave mistake. I almost fell. And here's why. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I saw that the sentence wasn't speedily given and I found myself tempted to follow them and have my heart fully set to evil because there was a prosperity to be found and there was what appeared to be no immediate effect to their cause. And he continues in verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're well-fed and they can afford a membership to the YMCA to work it off. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with folly. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition, they set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people, God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. There's a temptation to look at those who aren't receiving what we would say should be the consequences for their action and find ourselves tempted to follow. These wicked people, verse 11, say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And Asaph's just saying, look, morning devotions, what did it matter? Time and prayer and confession before the Lord, keeping a short list of where I have failed and asking Him to cleanse and forgive me of my failures and, and, and wash me clean, what has that gotten me? Because the individuals who don't do that, they seem to be doing a whole lot better. I mean, can you identify with this? Can you identify with with what Solomon's saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and what appears to be the prosperity of those who don't play it straight. And I know ISIS and human traffickers might be a, like a, a really far-fetched, out-of-touch example for us, but I'm, I'm fairly certain you probably know people in your life or at your work that play it this way. 
They're a bit slimy, and for whatever reason, the boss just doesn't seem to care or doesn't seem to know. I mean, these were the guys that, that in college you knew they didn't do anything for that paper. They didn't do anything for that project, and they, they found it or bought it or paid somebody off for it, and yet it, it kind of just sailed on through. Meanwhile, you busted your chops, and you didn't get nearly the grade they did. I mean, there, there's some, some at-close and personal examples that I think we can very easily find here. Well, Solomon continues back to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12. He's going to begin to give us some hope. And in verse 12, he writes, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. So, though every human indication would say that the evil they're doing, God is either turned a blind eye to or he is quite frankly okay with, it actually is not true. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Solomon's asking us, and he's writing this and encouraging those reading it to draw that conclusion, quite frankly, based on faith. And he doesn't use the word faith there. I I think we're not far off if we wanted to insert it. Yet I know by faith that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Now, the book of Hebrews defines faith for us as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And that's exactly what Solomon's telling us. It will be well for those who fear God. It'll be well for those who obey God. It'll be well for those who recognize the godness of God and respond rightly to that because God has said it would be well. And despite all indications, humanly speaking, that would point to the contrary, by faith in the words and the promises of God, we draw these conclusions. We don't confuse his patience with his permission. Now Solomon's a bit of an interesting character in that he confused God's patience with his permission. We're not going to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 17, Moses is given instructions by the Lord for what the kings of Israel were to not do and what they were to do. God anticipated, these people, they're going to want a king. They're not going to be satisfied with me leading them. They're going to want a human representative. And so it's as if he acquiesces to them and says, okay, you can have a king, but here's some rules and regulations for that king to follow. One of them is the king's not supposed to have a lot of horses. Solomon had thousands of horses. He confused God's patience with his permission. For Solomon, it started small. He wasn't supposed to amass a lot of gold and silver. He confused God's patience with his permission, and he had more treasuries of silver and gold than you and I could even begin to fathom. I think we're even told in 1 Kings that Solomon made silver as common as rocks. They weren't supposed to acquire many wives. So you got to wonder, for Solomon, as he's confusing God's patience with his permission, and he's going, well, wife number 224, God hasn't brought the sword yet, let's go 225. Now throw in a few concubines in there, all right, 
confuse patience with permission. Because for, for whatever reason, God didn't bring the swift judgment against his own law that he said. Interestingly enough, kings of Israel, they were to handwrite a copy of the first five books of the Old Testament. And then they were to submit their work to the priests so that the priests could verify that nothing was left out and nothing was put in. They were to approve the copy, and then the king was supposed to read his own handwritten copy of the first five books of the Old Testament all the days of his life as he ruled and reigned as God's human representative sitting on the throne. And there is absolutely no record of David even, of Solomon doing that. I think there's actually maybe only one Old Testament king that actually did that. There's a confusion of God's patience with his permission that very easily and very subtly can lead us to despair when we see the prosperity of the wicked around us, but lead us in arrogance and pride to go, well, I guess it didn't matter yesterday. Maybe it doesn't matter so much today. And Solomon's warning us against that. As a man who erred greatly in this regard, He's warning us against us, and he's telling us, look, now, God's word has said some things that you should have an assurance and a conviction for because God said them. It will be well with the one who fears the Lord. He continues in verse 14, again, just considering the vanity of what is unjust in the world. There's a vanity that takes place on earth. There's a righteous, or that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said this is also vanity. Solomon looks out and he sees that under the sun, the people trying to fear the Lord, it it doesn't appear that it's well with them in the here and now. And the people that have set their face against the Lord, it appears that they're doing just fine. And he's saying, it's meaningless. Meaning's not to be found here. Don't find meaning. Don't find stability. Don't find the meaning of life and where where you kind of pursue and place all your your marbles or put all your chips into this idea of of equal justice. Because you're going to continually and consistently find out and see examples of instances where injustice is still real. It's still there. And so then in trying to give us, again, some hope and some instruction in regards to what we're to do, Solomon continues in verse 15 and says, I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. He returns to this idea of trying to give us some hope to cling to, some action step to take. And he, in verse 12, told us, look, it's going to be well with you if you just aim and pattern your life to fear the Lord. In verse 15, he tells us, as you do that, enjoy the meals you get to share together. Enjoy the opportunities you have to sit down with a hot cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea and just just enjoy 
those gifts the Lord has given. Enjoy the opportunity you have to go and work because these are gifts that God has given you. Don't, don't neglect, don't find yourself in such despair obsessing over what appears to be, or not even appears to be, what is in reality gross injustice on a human scale. Don't despair and find yourself so consumed by that that you're not able to sit down and wrestle with your kids and play a board game with the family. and Have good friends over and tell stories and laugh. and Go to the beach and put your sand and toes in the sand. Because it'll be well with the one who fears the Lord. And we, we live that way by faith. We live that way because it's an assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of the things not seen. That God has said some things and by faith we will put our trust in the promises of God and in the word of God. And Asaph comes to the exact same conclusion. Back to Psalm 73. I believe we left off at verse 14 and so we'll go to verse 15. Asaph says this, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph's just thinking to himself here for a minute, and he's saying, look, if I, as I found myself, what are his words in verse 2, or yeah, if I had found myself actually stumbling and slipping and just began telling everybody, it walks into the holy place. You know, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I mean, look at them. They're, they're, they're loving life and they're wicked. It just forget it. Just go home. It's not worth it. Following the Lord's not worth it. It doesn't get you anything. It doesn't yield you anything. You know, because you can just be wicked and, and have all the prosperity you want. And so Asaph is saying, look, if I, if I had gone there, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. There's some significant consequences that Asaph has given some insight into and a vision of. That Asaph, just even highlighting this idea of, you know what, things with God, just forget about them. He's, he's cool with it. An entire generation of his children would have just walked away. But for Asaph, the light went on. The resolution, if you will, to his soul's angst came when he thought how to understand this. And he was wearied by the task. And then he went into the sanctuary of God. And he discerned their end. We don't know why God's patient with those who appear to prosper in wickedness. I don't know why God just doesn't bring the sword every time somebody sins. But I will tell you, I'm grateful he doesn't. Because I sin. There was a time in my life where I wasn't a child of God. And if God's economy, if his way of handling sin and injustice was just to bring the sword at the first sin ever committed, none of us would be sitting here. You and I have received God's patience in our lives when we didn't deserve it. For the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We, we deserve the sword. 
Because there was a time that we were dead in our transgressions. And rather than bringing the sword, God brought his grace. And he brought his mercy. And he made us alive in Christ. And it's by grace that we're saved. Through faith. So we don't know why God's not brought the sword to ISIS. We don't know why God's not brought the sword to human traffickers. I'm not sure it's wrong for us to pray that he does. Pray that he brings justice to these areas of injustice in our world. And do work at at bringing forth justice. We need to be very careful that there's not this fickleness in our hearts that either assumes we know more than God and could make better decisions than Him, or assumes that somehow we are outside of the fact that we just as much deserve the sword at one point or another in our lives than they did. Solomon concludes in chapter 8 by telling us, God's doing things, and you're not going to understand everything that God's doing, and part of that's purposeful. He's not revealed it. And in verses 16 and 17, he concludes by telling us this. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business or the busyness that is done under the earth, how neither day nor night no one's eyes could sleep, then I saw the work of God. Man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much he may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 25 to 29, that Solomon told us seven different times. I'm trying to find out something. I'm trying to figure it out. I want to I know the explanation of things. He tells us in chapter one, I believe it's verse 17, I, I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And even in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, he reminds us of that. I just, I turn my focus on learning all of these things that I can. And here he tells us, I wasn't able to learn it all. I was able to learn some. Wisdom has a value. Wisdom matters. I mean, there's, there's not a dismissal of wisdom here, but if we're trying to find an answer in wisdom to, to solve all these critical issues that can come up as we just observe the world around us, we're, we're going to come up lacking. And we come up lacking because God's not allowed us to have the insight completely. Perhaps so that we just don't arrogantly keep concluding we could do it better. Don't confuse God's patience with his permission. We're in what I think has been rightly described as a New Testament window of mercy. And Revelation 19 speaks very clearly to the fact that one day that window is going to close. And Jesus himself will bring the sword. And it'll all be over. No longer 
Will God be patient? He's never been permissive. But there will come a day where he is no longer patient. So let's run and cling to him while he's patient. And let's plead with those around us to not confuse his patience with his permission. Because you've got to answer the question of what do I do with my sin? There's a, there's a time. That window of mercy is going to close. And you will receive the sword if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to cleanse and forgive of all of your sin. And as believers, let's be careful that we don't see the lack of the sword and the lightning bolt as God somehow shrugging his shoulders and saying, that's all right. Because he's told us in his word, it's not. Let's pray. Father God, we ask of you that you would help us to see and to feel and to know that you are holy and you are righteous and you are just. And you're not giving permission to sin and wickedness but you have chosen to be patient. And God, we thank you for your patience. We thank you how every one of us here has received your patience because you still have given us breath in our lungs to breathe. And God, when I deserved the sword, when I deserved the wages of my sin, the, the speedy sentencing of the sin and 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 folly that I had committed, God, you gave me grace and mercy, and it was what I didn't deserve. God, help us to not confuse your patience with your permission. But to stay close and to celebrate and rejoice in who you are as gracious and merciful and the good gifts that you have given us. So God, give us, give us the power we need to enjoy that meal, that cup of coffee, rolling around on the floor with, with our kids and Stepping outside and feeling the warmth of the sun. God, help us to, to worship you and praise you and exalt you and rejoice in the things that you have given us. And it's for your glory and the exaltation of your son that we pray. Amen.